Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. Hi, Melanie. It's so great to see you here at ACMG. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about who you are, your title, and what you guys are all doing here. Okay. Um, My name is Melanie O'Leary. I'm a genetic counselor that works with a research study based out of the Broad Institute in Cambridge. It's called the Rare Genomes Project. Um, The goal of the project is to find families with undiagnosed but suspected genetic conditions and use different sequencing technologies to try to find them a genetic diagnosis. That's fascinating. How long have you all been around? Um, The project started, I think our very first consent session occurred with a family in May of 2017. Okay. So we're coming up on close to two years. So we had a pilot phase that lasted probably about six to nine months. And I would say probably the last year has been kind of just a steady building of trying to raise awareness of our existence and um, actually getting families through the pipeline and starting to make diagnoses. Do you have an end date or is this an ongoing project? As long as we can find funding and keep it going, we have no anticipated end date or recruitment number we're aiming for or anything like that. How many families have you brought in? Can you share I that? think our recent numbers, we had, we've had we enrolled, I think, something like 750 individuals and we have about three to four family members per family. So we're somewhere, I think, in the low 200s. That's exciting. That's really exciting considering that uh, it is not easy to convince for a a family or a patient to convince their physician that they need um, genetic testing. And, uh, you know, as I'm learning so much about the industry, it's one test isn't the answer. I mean, Mm -hmm. there there are multiple tests and kind of it's almost like a step, like you would start with this test and then move to the next test if you don't find anything. Is that correct? That's what it used to be. I think one of the goals, I think, of just the genetics community in general is to try to get insurers to embrace the concept of broader scope technologies. So get away from the test for this specific disease because that's what we think it is. And if that's negative, move on to the next one and to do more of a a broad-based kind of test for a lot of stuff at the same time. So you would do like a full sequence? Yeah. So that's what we're doing. We're doing whole genome sequencing in almost all cases. Um, And the thing that's a little bit different about our project is that we don't require that 
physicians refer families in. Families can just enroll directly online. And so most of the families have found us just through word of mouth or Facebook connections or... Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask. How would somebody know to come to you? For now, it's just been word of mouth. We come to conferences like ACMG and the National Society of Genetic Counselors to try to raise awareness with with providers to refer families. Excellent. Um, But families still have to be the people that decide themselves they want to enroll online. They want to do that. Mm -hmm. So, okay, for example, I also have a rare disease, lipodystrophy. So my diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. Yes. However, we're finding with lipodystrophy that the mutation one has may be important to know depend, because we're finding there's a correlation between response to treatment mm-hmm. and mutation. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of individuals in my community have difficulty getting uh, sequenced. Um, so I could, ref- I could say, hey, why don't you reach out and see if the genome project... Yeah, and people can, our website, um, we're in the process of getting some updates to it um, to provide a little bit more information about kind of the logistics and how it works. Um, But basically anybody um, with a rare but suspected um, genetic condition is welcome to kind of poke around and see if it's something that feels like it's a good fit for them. We do have some heart exclusions of things like cancer predisposition syndromes and things like that, where our families where we think like this type of sequencing really would be a benefit just because we do have limited resources, we want to make sure we kind of get the most bang for the buck. Exactly. Um, so have you worked with any communities um, where uh, there's a whole syndrome or a disease and the uh, mutation has yet to be discovered? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, one group that we've recently kind of partnered with is the Muscular Dystrophy Association and the Jane Foundation okay. um, to try to recruit individuals that have limb girdle muscular dystrophy, of which there are many genes that have been associated with it. Right. But about half of people still don't have a genetic diagnosis. And so we're looking for those non-genetically diagnosed families and individuals um, to try to find the ad- additional genes that are contributing to that kind of disease presentation. Um so you brought up a, an important point that I wanted to ask you about anyway. Um, I, I have seen uh, partnerships between you and advocacy groups or mm-hmm. foundations, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we try. Um, and it, it's been very kind of organic. We, in the beginning, weren't quite sure what the... Um, how many people were going to be interested and, and had a kind of a skeleton crew and we're just slowly, methodically just trying to get the kinks out before we kind of raise the barn and, and get the word out there. Um, but um, but we have found that it's helpful to come to uh, meetings like this where we get to meet professionals who each person has can immediately think of four or five families that they're in touch with that could benefit from our services. Exactly. Um, but we're finding that the biggest boost and what we see in terms of response rate comes from the family-to-family connections and Facebook things of families that just, it's their every their child's condition or their condition is their every day, all day. And their motivation is very different than a clinician who's juggling lots of families and in the moment is um, very honed in and targeted on it, but also is trying to do that for many, many families. And so um, that family-to-family involvement and connections and support, I think, are, are really the most powerful tool that are that's out there. I often say, and we see it over and over, that um, partnerships, like in, in a specific community and then among an organization like yours with a community, really helps catapult progress, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it, it's legit, it's trust and it's legitimacy and... Um, You know, we hear a lot of complaints from people that have joined other research studies where they contributed samples and just went into the 
it just went off into space and they and never heard back it. and that was the end. Um, and so we're mindful of it and are still working on ways where we can scalably still keep in contact with people in a functional way, um, but to just try to make it as much of a give and take. And um, we're, we're big proponents of sharing the information that we have back with families, but to other researchers too, Excellent. because yeah. we're not going to find a diagnosis for everybody, but right. maybe somebody else will if we can give them the information to do the digging. Um, and so uh, it really, I think it's a kind of a community-based thing that's really going to move it forward. So in the event you find a diagnosis, uh, wh- how do you all handle that? So our sequencing is all done in a research setting. And so if we find something that we think is a diagnosis or even a suspicious kind of potentially plausible diagnosis, we clinically confirm it um, through a more simple sequencing technology. Yes. Um, so we With uh, a CLIA certified yes, lab then, right? right. Yep. So I found that really um, unique and special, actually. So your project is research-based, yes. which means that you can't share that information directly with the family, correct? That's right, yeah. Um, so what's the difference between a research uh, lab test and a CLIA certified? It's funny, we have our se- the sequencing that we do at the Broad is in the same building. <laughs> it has more to do with the processes and the regulations that have to do with being a clinical laboratory and being inspected and having over- you know oversight from regulatory bodies. Right. Um, so when there's costs and formality and things that go with that. And um, so we kind of made the decision that um, we can we can help more people if we do research-grade sequencing um, and then confirm it in a clinical lab. Well, because once you identify it... It's, it's a quick test after that. Excellent. That's a great yeah. service. And yeah. I think an important thing to, as a give back. And, and the way that our program runs is we do everything remotely, so there's no on-site visit. So we never become a medical provider for the families. Okay. Um, so when we do have a result, we do need a clinician that the family knows, trusts, feels comfortable with to partner with us to get the result back to them. Um, and so that's where I think we kind of we kind of try to hand that back to the family and their care providers to kind of, now they can take that information and take it to the next level. So even though you don't work directly like as a genetic counselor with the families, um, what are your thoughts on what a diagnosis means to people? I just, I just am still astounded at this day that I hear anywhere that a diagnosis doesn't matter. Um, it's definitely self-selected. The families that we hear from obviously are in search of a diagnosis, but I feel like there's so, it is such a powerful um, end to a lot of questions and worry and concerns. And every family that we've diagnosed so far is is kind of my new kind of favorite, kind of feel good, we helped somebody kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and in this day and age where I feel like now that there's genetic-based therapies that are coming, where a specific gene might be the key to a treatment avenue right. or a specific variant within that gene or a type of variant that a diagnosis is even more important now than it has been in the past. Um, so I think it's the tools are better. Diagnoses are, you know, more common. Um, I just think it's a really exciting time. I just, I think we're trying to help fill that void of there are a lot of people that still need this that can't get it through the traditional route. So we have so many advancements. Uh, I mean, sequencing right now it's is far amazing. more accessible. Yeah. How do you think that's going to change the face of rare disease I, or how we treat rare disease? Yeah, I think um, at a meeting like this where there are talks of, of genetic-based treatments and therapies, I think that's my where my mind goes first is, um, you know, your specific variant or 
um, gene is amenable to this specific type of treatment or fix or at least investigation into that path. Um, there's a really interesting project too. Matt Might is a... a uh, the mighty, know, Matt, the mighty. <laughs> yes, he is mighty. The mighty. Yeah. Um, he gave a talk at our at the road recently and was talking about his efforts to just create a pipeline for families that once you have your diagnosis, what's the next step and where do I go? Um, but he has an interesting tool where you can query, you can kind of put in the gene of interest or something, and you can query is there potentially a treatment that's already FDA approved or an over-the-counter something that potentially has a chance based on the pathway to kind of have an effect. And he gave some anecdotal stories about that. But um, I just, the more... Sp- the more specific, the more information we have, the best we're going, the better we're going to be at coming up with kind of treatments and and um, modifications and management. You mentioned that you have this research data, and you want to make sure that it's used. You get the biggest bang for your buck, right? Yeah. And you share it. How do you sh- like? How do you share that? What is the the shareable network? I mean, where does it go? So when we share data, the first thing we do is strip personal identifying information from it so that it's as anonymous as it can be for uh, for people out there. And we share in a couple different ways. If, if, if there are things that we find and we think they're clear cut and we want just to add that level of support that we found yet another patient who has this condition, there's a database called ClinVar that we submit information to. And it's a compilation of clinical labs and researchers who kind of put their finds and their solves in there. So we can inc- show an increase in prevalence, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. and, and get a, a sense of what types of variants within the gene are causing this disease and uh, what do people think about their actual disease causality in terms of certainty. Um, for variants that we find that we're suspicious of, uh, we participate in something called Matchmaker. Uh, one of my colleagues equated it to a game of Go Fish. <laughs> we have something in our hand that we're suspicious of and say, does anybody else out there have something similar. Um, and what it does is a kind of an, uh, uh, an internet or online algorithmic tool that just basically will connect researchers who participate in this kind of network. Um, so recently we had a family where we had a variant of interest and we kind of threw it out into the ether. Um, and then we did connect with somebody who said, hey, I have a patient with overlapping symptoms who has a variant in that exact same gene. And we looked and like, hey, I have one too. And I think we're up to an N of four, five, six or something. Interesting. Um, so we're in the process of getting everybody on the same page and trying to do some additional functional studies to try to further support that this is actually physically, biologically relevant to their medical condition. Um, and there's no and as diagnosis. A, I mean, there's the, nobody has discovered no, this mutation. There's no name for state. it. It okay. just is. Um, and so there will be a name for it at some point. Um and then will you go and, back to the families? Yes. And so what our what we do is we'll let the we let the family know now that it's just technically it's a variant of uncertain significance that's caught our attention, but we found other patients too. And would you be interested or willing to give additional samples to do some um, further proof that this is, is indeed causative? And it'll take a little time because that's the pace of how it works. But um, but it's just it started with that. Hey, does anybody else have a? And it just springs this. And That's so exciting. In in this world, I mean, I think we're moving away from the world of uh, data hoarding, right? Yes. Where yes. Uh, it's each individual wants yes. to be the discoverer and yes. and the publisher of mm-hmm. the, right? Yep. And the Broad Institute as a whole um, is very um, open access to pretty much everything that we do, as best I understand. So, um, 
databases that help people understand just generally how common human variation is, um, those are open access tools that we have. Our, da- our sequencing data from individuals who participate in our study do go into databases that people have access to. They have to fill an application and prove that they have a bona fide research interest in the data. And so they're vetted, but then they're given access to sequencing data and some limited clinical information to have at it and see if you can find somebody that adds to your N of 1 to make an N of 2. Absolutely. Um, That's exciting. It's really exciting. That that really is. You must love your job. I love my job. (laughs) (laughs) I do love my job. So as physicians stop Mm -hmm. by your booth here at ACMG, Mm -hmm. what is like the most consistent takeaway um, that you all provide? What's your biggest advice to them? Like what, if you can give one message to genetic counselors or physicians. For us, it's like singing to the choir <laughs> um, because this audience gets it. And I think- The what, importance of the importance genetic of testing. It. Yeah. And I think for the people that stop by almost universally, every person is like, oh, I can think of four or five families off the top of my head um, who have hit a wall in terms of insurance coverage for testing or- They've maxed out what's available clinically, and genome is not very widely available clinically. Correct. Um, but it, so it, it would be a next step for families who have exhausted whole exome sequencing. Um, but they have these families that you're, they're convinced there's something there, and they just haven't been able to find it. And so we're a potential avenue to try to to try to do that. So um, it's exciting. It's an ex. I mean, it <laughs> it's is. Really it's, it is exciting times. It's really exciting to find a project like yours because um, it, without a diagnosis. It's hard for um, patients to find extra hope. Mm-hmm. And so I I would say any sort of opportunity to really not only help a particular family, but the field of rare disease. Yes. I mean, I, I believe we're, we are rare um, in our individual diagnoses. But when we really start looking more closely at all genome sequencing, yeah. I think we'll find some incredible overlaps, don't you? Absolutely, Yes. So I, as I as I close out our talk, um, do you have a, kind of an idea on what you're most hopeful for as we continue to advance in genetics? Um, I think I'm most hopeful for equal access and support for families across the board, not just the connected and the medically savvy, and um, but just that. Um, we can re- that we can reach more broadly everybody who's in need of services, and then with that, um, kind of move things forward. I honestly thought everyone would say they're most hopeful for gene therapy for everyone, but uh, it, we're not there yet, right? So we yeah. have to think about until we get there, we really need to make sure everyone has access. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. Thanks. Thanks so much for Thank talking you for having with me here, Millie. Is- it was, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Thanks. I've been excited. I've heard of you, so I've been excited to talk to you. Thanks, Sue. Nice to talk to you, too. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, You can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in common. Click, listen, feel, 